On May 15, 1972, the town of Laurel, Maryland was the site of an incredibly important event. On that day, a political rally was being held at the Laurel Shopping Center. The politician in question was a candidate for President of the United States. However, this candidate was very controversial, so there were many hecklers at the rally. A few hours earlier, they had even been pelted with tomatoes at Wheaton Plaza in Wheaton, Maryland. But one person attending the rally certainly seemed excited to be there. Wearing red, white, and blue clothing, a pair of thick-rimmed black glasses, and a campaign button, one man appeared to be a huge supporter of the politician holding the rally. His name was Arthur Bremer. But Bremer was not a supporter of this candidate. In fact, he had traveled to this rally with the intention of killing them. He had also been present at that day's rally in Wheaton, as well as the rallies in Lansing, Michigan, and Kalamazoo, Michigan. You could say he had an obsession with the candidate. Around 4 p.m., the candidate finished speaking, and they began shaking hands with the rally's attendees. Seeing an opportunity to carry out his plan, Bremer stepped forward and pulled a 38 caliber revolver from his waistband. He pointed it towards his target and fired several shots. Four of the rounds hit their target, two in their lower abdomen, one in their chest, and one in their spinal column. The candidate fell back and immediately began bleeding out. According to medical reports, they lost a pint of blood before being stabilized. It would take a five-hour-long operation that evening to save the candidate's life, and because of the bullet lodged in their spinal column, they would never walk again. This wasn't the first time they ran for president, but it wouldn't be the last. In total, this candidate ran for president four times. This Bernie Sanders-level devotion to failed presidential campaigns was a result of their controversial beliefs. Despite this, they had a long and successful political career otherwise, and their presidential runs, while unsuccessful, had a lasting impact on the U.S. I'm going to tell you all about them, right now, on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 16th episode of this podcast, and I'm excited for you to listen to this episode. Special thank you to Patreon subscriber Sodak Zach. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. On August 25, 1919, 
George Corley Wallace Jr. was born in Cleo, Alabama. He was the oldest of four children. From a young age, Wallace had a fascination with politics. In 1935, at the age of 16, he won a contest to serve as an intern in the Alabama State Senate. Following this internship, Wallace reportedly told his family that he would be governor of Alabama one day. In high school, Wallace was a competitive boxer, winning a regional championship. He subsequently attended the University of Alabama, and in 1942, he graduated with a Bachelor of Laws degree. The next year, Wallace enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Force. His dreams of becoming a pilot were crushed when he contracted spinal meningitis, leaving him partially deaf and with permanent nerve damage. Because of this, he instead became a flight engineer. During this time, he married Lurleen Burns, who he met while working at a local grocery store. In the last years of World War II, he was stationed on the Northern Mariana Islands and he conducted several air raids on Japan. Near the end of the war, he was given a medical discharge for an anxiety disorder. Upon returning to Alabama, George Wallace became a local political activist, volunteering with the campaigns of many Democratic Party politicians. In 1945, he was appointed as Assistant Attorney General of Alabama. In May of the next year, at the age of just 26, Wallace was elected to the Alabama House of Representatives as a Democrat. He was a delegate at the 1948 Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, which was won by incumbent President Harry Truman, who supported integration and equal rights for black Americans. During the convention, 13 Southern Democrats, including segregationist stalwart and then-governor of South Carolina Strom Thurmond, walked out of the convention to form the pro-segregation Dixiecrat Party. While the young Wallace did not participate in the walkout, the charismatic Thurmond had a substantial impact on his future views on race. In 1952, he became an Alabama circuit judge, and he was praised by civil rights activists for being fair to everyone in the courtroom regardless of their race, as well as for being one of the only Southern judges to address black lawyers as Mr. as opposed to their first name. However, he was also a major supporter of segregation, and he was even charged with contempt of court in 1959 for blocking federal efforts to expand black voter registration. In 1958, Wallace entered the Democratic primary for governor of Alabama and was even endorsed by the NAACP, but he lost the primary to Alabama Attorney General and Ku Klux Klan member John Patterson. Ironically, Wallace's lenient treatment of black defendants in parole hearings likely cost him the election, because, you know, Alabama. Despite this failed run, Wallace ran again four years later in 1962 in the hopes of appealing to Alabama's voters he renounced his moderate views on race and embraced segregationism. This time, he won the Democratic primary with 55% of the vote. 
Since the Republican Party wasn't really a thing back then in Alabama, the Democratic primary was basically the election. Sure enough, Wallace won the general election with 96% of the vote, and in January of 1963, he was inaugurated as the 45th governor of Alabama. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you do not know about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make your own podcast. Anchor gives you all the tools you need to record, edit, and publish a podcast about anything you're passionate about, whether it's sports, cooking, art, politics, obscure historical events, or anything else. You also don't need to have to go through the long and potentially expensive process of distributing your podcast, as Anchor automatically publishes it to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and others. You can podcast from the comfort of your couch, so long as you have a computer or phone with you. You can easily make money through podcasting without having to seek out sponsors yourself, since Anchor gives them to you. And the best part is, it's free. You don't have to spend a penny. If you want to make your own podcast, go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app on iOS or Android to get started. It was clear from the get-go that George Wallace's tenure as governor would come with more segregation. During his inaugural speech, he said, and I quote, Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. In 1963, he became notorious after President John F. Kennedy ordered the U.S. Army's 2nd Infantry Division to enforce racial integration at the University of Alabama. As the 2nd Infantry Division escorted black students Vivian Malone and James Hood towards the registration office, Wallace stood in the doorway to the office to prevent them from attending the university. A famous image shows Wallace blocking the doorway while Attorney General Nick Katzenbach, who grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, attempts to talk Wallace down. While Wallace eventually agreed to integrate the University of Alabama, he later unsuccessfully attempted to prevent black students from attending public elementary schools in Alabama. Needless to say, Wallace was not a fan of the anti-segregation President Kennedy. In 1963, Wallace said, and I quote, The president wants us to surrender this state to Martin Luther King and his group of pro-communists who have instituted these demonstrations. On November 20th, 1963, while in Dallas, Texas, Wallace announced his intention to run against Kennedy in the 1964 presidential primaries. Two days later, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. In the primaries, incumbent President Lyndon B. Johnson, who was Kennedy's vice president, defeated Wallace. Johnson and his running mate, Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey, would go on to win the general election against the Republican candidate, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, and his running mate, Republican National Committee Chair William E. Miller. Following this failed run, 
George Wallace served as governor of Alabama until 1966, when term limits prevented him from running for re-election. His wife, Lurleen, ran as a surrogate candidate, essentially allowing Wallace to continue serving. She won the Democratic primary against two former governors, and she easily won the general election, becoming the first female governor of Alabama. However, Lurleen Wallace's tenure as governor was cut short on May 7, 1968, when she died of uterine cancer at the age of 41. Her anti-segregation lieutenant governor, Albert Brewer, became governor of Alabama, and he started rolling back many of Wallace's efforts to preserve segregation. Because of this, George Wallace shifted his focus away from state politics and towards the national stage. In 1967, Wallace founded the pro-segregation American Independent Party. With this party, he announced his intention to run in the 1968 presidential election. He briefly considered former MLB commissioner and Kentucky governor Happy Chandler as his running mate, but this idea was scrapped after Wallace learned that Chandler had greenlit Jackie Robinson's hiring by the Brooklyn Dodgers. Other potential running mates included FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, famous Hollywood actor John Wayne, and even KFC founder Colonel Harlan Sanders. Ultimately, Wallace picked U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff Curtis LeMay, whom Wallace had idolized from a young age due to his dream of being a pilot. President Johnson, meanwhile, opted not to run for re-election, and the Democratic Party was grooming former U.S. Attorney General and New York Senator Robert F. Kennedy as their nominee. Kennedy almost certainly would have been the nominee had he not been assassinated by Palestinian militant Sirhan Sirhan on June 5, 1968. Because of Kennedy's assassination, President Johnson's Vice President Hubert Humphrey won the Democratic primaries, and for his running mate, he selected Maine Senator Edmund Muskie. The Republican Party, meanwhile, selected former Vice President and California Senator Richard Nixon as their candidate, with Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew as his Vice President. Wallace's campaign was very unique compared to those of Nixon and Humphrey, especially on foreign policy. He promised to pull all U.S. troops out of Vietnam if the war wasn't won in 90 days, and he called foreign aid money poured down a rat hole. Some modern politicians could learn a thing or two from that. Both sides had legitimate fears about Wallace's candidacy. Humphrey feared that Wallace would pull blue-collar voters and unions away from Democrats, while Nixon feared that he and Wallace would split socially conservative voters. The 1968 election was even the origin of an extremely controversial electoral strategy known as the Southern Strategy, which may or may not have actually been planned by the Republican Party. Please don't get mad at me if you're a Republican or a Democrat. I'm not going to say whether or not I think it was actually a thing. Essentially, the Southern Strategy was a supposed attempt by Richard Nixon to sway pro-segregation voters in the South towards the Republican Party. 
Again, I don't want to make anybody mad, so I'm not going to comment further on whether or not the Republican Party actually embraced racism. So anyway, here are the results of the election. Wallace won 46 electoral votes, carrying the states of Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Humphrey, meanwhile, won 191 electoral votes. It turned out, his fear of Wallace swaying blue-collar voters was legitimate, as solid blue states like New Jersey, Wisconsin, and Indiana were actually won by Nixon. Nixon won the election with 301 total votes. Wallace returned to Alabama, where he was elected as governor for a second term in 1970, as Alabama had altered its term limits. In what is considered one of the most racist campaigns in political history, Wallace aired commercials with slogans such as, Wake up Alabama, blacks vow to take over Alabama. In 1972, he returned to the Democratic Party, and he made plans to once again run for president. Nixon ran for re-election with Agnew as his running mate, and for the first time, the Democratic primaries featured women, including women of color. These candidates included New York Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman in Congress, and Hawaii Congresswoman Patsy Mink, the first Asian American woman in Congress. Three frontrunners emerged, George Wallace, Hubert Humphrey, and South Dakota Senator George McGovern. But while Wallace was on the campaign trail, something big happened. This brings us back to Laurel, Maryland on May 15, 1972. The presidential candidate shot by Arthur Bremer was none other than George Wallace. Bremer, who suffered from schizophrenia, didn't have any issues with Wallace's political views. He instead wanted to gain notoriety for killing a prominent politician. For his crime, Bremer was sentenced to 63 years in prison. He was granted parole in 2007, and today, he lives at his family's home in Wisconsin. Wallace narrowly survived the assassination attempt, but he was permanently paralyzed from the waist down. While recovering in the hospital, Wallace was visited by many people, and one of them was Shirley Chisholm. Wallace and Chisholm spoke very frequently while Wallace was in the hospital, and this had an impact on Wallace's beliefs on race. This, combined with Wallace becoming a born-again Christian, led him to renounce his segregationist beliefs in the late 1970s. The 1972 Democratic primaries were won by George McGovern, but McGovern and his running mate, U.S. Ambassador to France Sergeant Shriver, lost to President Nixon, having only won just Massachusetts and Washington, D.C. Wallace again ran in the Democratic presidential primaries in 1976, where he finished in third behind California Governor Jerry Brown and Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter. Carter and his running mate, Minnesota Senator Walter Mondale, went on to defeat incumbent President Gerald Ford in the general election. George Wallace continued to serve as governor of Alabama until 1979, and he was elected to a fourth term as governor in 1983. During his final term, he asked for forgiveness from black Americans for his racist past, 
he appointed a record number of black officials, and commenting on his standing at the University of Alabama doorway, he said, I was wrong. Those days are over, and they ought to be over. Wallace left office in 1987, and on September 13, 1998, Wallace passed away at the age of 79 due to complications from Parkinson's disease. To date, he was the third longest serving governor in U.S. history. Because of his impact on the 1972 presidential election, two of his biographers referred to him as the most influential loser in U.S. politics. Not much of note has happened with Wallace's American Independent Party since 1972, but in the 2008 presidential election, the party ran Alan Keyes, a black man, as its candidate. Wallace would surely be proud. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I know this was a longer episode than usual, but it may be my favorite that I've done so far. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash Historia Obscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.